do we need to believe in God because it's useful, or do we absolutely need to believe in God? Am I making the, the difference clear? That question always stops me. Take your time. You need to aim at a transcendent. You need to aim at some, some transcendent ethic. You have to do that. And, and the reason for that is that the transcendent ethic is the way that things are put right. It's not an illusion. And, and, and it's, not, it's not a mere rational construct. It's not an invention. It's none of those things. It's something that you discover. And, and you discover it despite yourself. Like, see, one of, the things, one of the things Nietzsche proposed when he talked about the death of God and the potential for catastrophe that would, be, would emerge as a consequence of that was that people would have to create their own values. We'd have to replace the external valuation scheme that religion provided with something that was psychological, let's say. It's fine. It's a, it's a daring hypothesis. The psychoanalysts, especially Jung, were great students of Nietzsche. And Jung knew why Nietzsche was wrong because of what he learned from Freud. What Jung learned from Freud was that we weren't masters in our own house. That we're beholden to psychological phenomena that are beyond our voluntary control. We have a nature, and that expresses itself within us in ways that we cannot control rationally. It manifests itself as part of reality. It's phenomenological reality, subjective reality, but it's reality nonetheless, like the reality of a dream. You don't invent your dreams like in a voluntary sense. They manifest themselves in the field of your imagination. But Freud was painfully secular. Freud thought oh. God was a, a, a childish disease. Yes, he did. he did. He thought that religion was a grand wish fulfillment. But it's a very shallow criticism, and he should have known better. And that's why you and Freud broke. I guess that. Well, so this was a video um, of an interview. It's, it's an edited video uh, interview. I would have liked to have had access to more. But it's, uh, let's see here, an Israeli psychiatrist or psychologist. I'm not familiar with him before uh, this morning. His name is Gadi Taub, and I hope I pronounced it correctly. Interview with Jordan Peterson. Uh, what struck me, uh, it's a 25-minute interview, and about midway through, at about 12 minutes, 40 seconds, he asked Jordan Peterson about God. And I paused it, and I was just discussing this with, uh, while well, we were watching it uh, as a group. Well, watching it together. It seems weird to say a group. I mean, we are all a group, but... <coughs> Uh, the opening, uh, he begins by, well, can I summarize your philosophy as, uh, you know, meaning, right? Uh, we need to find, uh, not a sense of meaning, but to find actual meaning. It's interesting how they said that. But about halfway through, he asks him, okay, what about God? And I was uh, half expecting Jordan Peterson to go down his exodus uh, in fact, I'm surprised he hasn't updated his um, Book of Job because uh, his daughter's experience, his experience, I mean his wife's experience supporting him, all of this could uh, be translated uh, into the Book of Job and therefore transmuted to a broader audience, I would think, right? Share it with your audience, uh, the lessons that are resident in the Book of Job. Uh, for me, what what stood out was a couple of comments. Um, I, I understand we're trying to make this fairly simple. But so when asked about God, uh, you heard uh, Jordan Peterson responds, uh, mentioning Nietzsche's 
uh, God is dead. I've mentioned this before. We definitely have to go back and read what he actually says because it's much clearer uh, if you read the entire section. And having read this section, you understand more what Jordan Peterson's getting at. He, he does mention that God is dead. I don't. I personally wouldn't use that because I would like to explain that um, God is only dead, I guess, euphemistically, because, I mean, he was never alive. Same as this idea that I try to correct people when they say ego death. Your ego never existed. It was this construct you attached to and create from moment to moment. How can something that doesn't exist die? I mean, it, it's a weird thing. But Nietzsche was very clear, and Jordan follows it up by explaining exactly what he was trying to uh, to ask us to do. Since we no longer believed in the gods that we created as a template for the morality that we knew we all had to subscribe to, to make all this work and to get along, to get along. So if we no longer believe in those gods, then what they were created for, why we believed in them or why they existed, right, uh, or their myth was moot, right? Because if you don't believe it anymore, it's not serving its purpose. If it's not serving its purpose, it's not instilling these uh, ethical or moral values, right? And I love that he goes on and they talk about it. And he even says, table of rules. Kind of funny because uh, I guess that might be a translation I might not have read of Nietzsche, but he talks a lot. It's actually one of the chapters in Zarathustra, which... Until I started to do some studying, in fact, just uh, last night, I realized I was right about um, how much uh, Nietzsche and specifically Zarathustra influenced Jung and, and how much Nietzsche himself and Zarathustra, Zarathustra influenced all of Western philosophy and, and our concept of, I, I argue, of just about everything at this point. So to forget... Uh, to mention Nietzsche is same with the good and evil. I mean, he could have mentioned Zarathustra. He could have mentioned um, I don't know how many other books of Nietzsche with that. But the Table of Values, very important uh, chapter. I argue one of the most important chapters in Zarathustra, right? Because we need to carve for ourselves a new Table of Values, not completely replacing all the old, but this is this transvaluation of all values. So we need to realize, I mean, not everything is going to work for us. We've got to personalize this stuff. We've got to modernize it. But at the same time, we can't throw everything out, right? The importance of uh, mythology, uh, the importance of, uh, of meaning, the importance of, of meta, right? right? This transformation, if I can quote James Joyce's Ulysses, the metempsychosis, metempsychosis. I think that's a missed, uh, he's not just playing with the words, because if you break down metempsychosis, that's burning away of the old self, like a phoenix from the ashes. And once again, James Joyce, heavily influenced by Jung, uh, no doubt he influenced, um, sorry, William James, heavily influenced by Nietzsche. I have no doubt that there's some connection there. Uh, Jung, Joyce, uh, because we, if we look at this, not to be crass, but if we look at the history, James Joyce might have had mild uh, schizophrenia. 
I argue we're all on a spectrum in some way. Uh, the reason why they, they think this is, of course, it's hard to um, diagnose someone after the fact. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but his daughter had um, diagnosed schizophrenia that uh, she battled uh, for her whole life. And as I've mentioned before, in Jung's Liber Novus, uh, he uh, himself thought uh, he was um, uh, at danger of being or was uh, schizophrenic. Right. Uh, so they go on in the video. Uh, they talk about uh, the APA uh, put out some. I'm going to ignore that for this particular um, this particular talk because there was some other stuff that I I actually didn't notice the first time through. Um, I was really just going to talk about uh, the death of God and Nietzsche. This idea that uh, we no longer believe in the values, the uh, the morals, the ethics that uh, these gods were intended to. Uh, instill. So we have to uh, create for ourselves a, a table of values, which is almost a direct quote from Nietzsche. Um, again, you, we can see the incredible influence of Jung and Nietzsche on Jordan Peterson's philosophy and therefore Western philosophy as a whole. But just to talk about this meaning, this hero's journey, how we all have to be our own hero in our story, Jordan Peterson goes on and he starts talking about his daughter and her battle with illness. He says, you can, you can lose your body and you can lose your soul. But he says, never use the illness as an excuse. We've talked about this, right? Agency. Never do something for someone uh, that they can do for themselves. It robs them of their agency. So arguably, if you rob yourself of a task that you can do, but you use victimhood to tell you, no, my illness will not allow me to do that. You yourself are robbing yourself of agency. Right? So I wrote, uh, if you cannot do something, work around or accept it. But never use this uh, to avoid doing what you know you should do. That, that was uh, from uh, Jordan Peterson, that last sentence. I believe that is almost a direct quote of what he said. Um, yeah, so he asked about believing in God, right? Uh, I believe it was about a belief in the transcendent ethic, the morals. Uh, he mentions that it's not uh, a construct, right? That God is not a construct or the belief similar to earlier when he said meaning is not a sense of. You really, truly have to believe it, Right? Uh, he says, uh, even, this is so true, I love this line now. You discover it despite yourself. Uh, this is so true. So very, very true. Right, then he talks about catastrophe. Uh, right, and, and so the, the last takeaway for me is he found, um, yeah, so they talk a little bit about evil. We'll get to that in a moment. But what he found is where he related to uh, learning uh, that we're not masters in our own house. Right? But I argue, wait a minute, Jung does say that, that we're not masters in our own house. I mean, one of my favorite, it's not a direct quote, but one of my favorite um, quotes from Jung is this idea that the majority of evil or bad or stuff that we're not uh, happy with, whatever you want to call it. The status quo 
right? As it is, not how it should or could be. The status quo tends to be uh, sourced in the fact that the majority of people walk around completely unconscious. So that's what Jung was getting at, this idea that we're not masters in our own house because we don't uh, utilize our free will. We don't bring to bear our free will because we tend to be so unconscious. We tend to be so distracted. We tend to be so trapped in uh, system one thinking, system one, uh, type one, uh, the auto, automatic type thinking, arguably the, the, um, the consciousness we all share with animals, our uh, initial consciousness when we're young and we grow into our type two, our, uh, our system two thinking, our higher order thinking, something that evolves over time. I argue, eh, not as true as I've mentioned this before. I actually think that our theory of type one and type two is wrong that we have this auto-thinking, particularly uh, for when we are in a stressful situation, because as I mentioned, uh, the traumatologist Basil van der Kolz uh, mentioned that when we're stressed, when we're traumatized, when we're um, burdened by our past or our, our anxiety, that our brain shuts down, doesn't work, we can't even parse information, can't even accept information, let alone think for ourselves. So that's the goal here. And for me, I don't see this, like I mentioned about uh, children learning at a certain age, uh, language better than, I think it's more of a mindful fact that um, our type one and type two are separated not by biology and need or evolution, but the reason why we use our type one and type two a thought process, or automatic, or mindless, or unconscious type thinking, uh, more than our higher order is because we just don't practice it. We just don't um, work it like a muscle. This is where I've mentioned that dyslexics show the incredible power of the mind if we actually bring it to bear. The example I tend to use is Rubens' vase. That's that picture. It's, it's essentially an optical illusion of two vases or candlesticks um, facing each other. And depending on the person, on average, they'll either see vases or candlesticks or faces. But the beauty of the dyslexic mind is they see both at once. And depending on me, I used to have a harder time flipping between them. Now I'm able to flip and even um, see them both at the exact same time. I think this is an example of this mindful. I mean, I have another example. Well, I've mentioned before with um, LSD that uh, I believe that this sort of mindful practice allows you to control uh, the psychedelic experience to a degree that many others cannot. But it's just a, a skill that's developed, a muscle, right, that you train. It's a little, it's like a bicep, as it were. So... What I mean by that is I think we arguably could remain in our higher order thinking all the time. Because look at high-functioning dyslexic, look at a high-functioning traumatized people where their automatic self needs to be suppressed because it is so reactive or um, they're so detached, detached from their somatic experience or their actual experience. Um, which is why I find this video as well 
uh, hilarious because he brings this up, but they just kind of glaze over it. The importance of Jung's individuation process as it relates to, you know, good and evil, uh, what's good or what's bad, what you like, what you don't like. It's an understanding of who you are, of the world around you, and it's the gestalt of existence, right? You can't separate who you are from your experience, same as you can't separate how you interact with your reality and your perception of reality and, and the nature of reality. All of this is all tied together, right? Um, so that's why I mentioned um, uh, the... So I said, uh, the unconscious being is subject to experience. But then I mentioned presence. So I've mentioned that already. What I'm talking about is an unconscious being, they discussed this, an unconscious being is subject, like I said, not a master in his own house, but that's only because he's allowing um, events and experience uh, to, to propel him instead of uh, applying Nietzsche's Willenmacht, this uh, your will propels, right? And so I just mentioned... Uh, Oh, well, he mentioned that Freud called uh, God a childish disease. Um, it is in the sense that if you believe in God is something separate from oneself. I mentioned this, um, was it last night? So what were we, uh, were we talking about? Um, geez, I think... Oh, yeah, okay, so this weekend I just started a new course on uh, the goddess. Uh, it's being taught by uh, Professor Timosina. He's uh, one of the foremost experts uh, in Sanskrit, Vedanta, uh, Kashmiri Shaivism. Uh, and this is about, uh, it's Shakti uh, and uh, Krishna and uh, Kali. So it's this idea of the feminine aspect. So it can be the God aspect, Brahman nature, but in a female form, I've mentioned this before with Avilokitesvara, uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion uh, can manifest as male or female, right? So we were watching this, and I loved it because Timosina, who is a devout uh, tantric practitioner, still teaches this for all people to be able to use uh, these lessons. So when he's talking about this, he ends up explaining this union with the, the goddess, the divine principle, the, you know. And the way he explained it, he didn't explain it like the goddess is something separate or she is an actual being. No, the way he explained it is this union or samadhi, this um, um, union or, or the unity of the opposites, as Jung like to call. When you're at one with yourself, meaning your being, your relationship to reality, and you're at one with reality, and you're at one with the self and the other, he talks about this progression to unity or enlightenment uh, or samadhi, this concentrated aspect. And the way it's explained, it's not that you meet God, but you actually unite with the aspect that is Shakti or God or Providence. And 
this is what that uh, Sanskrit saying that, that is often translated as, as I am God, but what it means is, is we are God. So he teaches this, this um, contemplation in Tantra as uh, a yoking to the, the, the divine. That's why it's, it's yoga, yoga. It's not a connection to something external. It is wholly identical to Jung's connection, to William James's uh, radical empiricism. It's realizing you are already connected. That's Buddhism. It's the Tathagatagarbha. Uh, that's your storehouse of Buddha nature. It was already pre-existing. Right? So that's this idea. I've, I've mentioned it before. Just yesterday, I found out that I'm not alone in believing that uh, not just Nietzsche, but uh, Nietzsche Zarathustra was incredibly influential on Jung and Jung's philosophy. And we're seeing it here. Right? And we're also seeing what I also have said for a while, and, and there's a lot of evidence to support my belief, that uh, Nietzsche Zarathustra was incredibly influenced by the Upanishads, right? Because I've said this multiple times before, in the Isha Upanishad, uh, the Sixth Sutra states that when you can see yourself and others, and you can see others in the self, that's true moksha, mukti, this idea of liberation, freedom, awakeness, awareness, understanding. I'll always love the Tibetan, the way they put it. It translates to uh, the clear light of insight. This idea of awakening to one's own innate understanding and wisdom. Right? It's no different than just bringing your attention to bear. How many times have you been in an experience where you're just lost, you're confused, you don't know what's going on until you stop, do a little pranayama, a little satipatthana, you know, a little deep breathing and a little concentration on your breath. All of a sudden, you're able to bring to bear your, 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 your consciousness, your imagination and your memory. And all of a sudden, things just start to fall into place to make sense. And this is what we're dancing about here. So many of us will walk around and we'll deal with our pragmatic existence. But how many of us even consider our radical empirist aspect, right? Or Nietzsche's synchronicity, right? I love that because it is so true. There's two aspects to Jung's synchronicity, as, as uh, Jordan Peterson mentions in this video at the very beginning. You have to believe. Right? Synchronicity can be like deja vu. Right? It's like, oh, cool, that's kind of nice. Now you can just see it as, what would you call it? Kismet, chance, happenstance. But Jung was really getting at this idea, not dissimilar from Camus' uh, absurd. You got to embrace it. Embrace it, even if you don't see that's the, what I've mentioned. Psychology has shown that the human creature cannot see you know, incremental advance. So we have to believe, we have to trust in the process. So this is exactly what's teaching. 
right? You'll see synchronicity, but it's until you really embrace it as manifest, as not a concept, as not chance, as not uh, Jung's happy fiction. I mean, that is one thing I wouldn't criticize Jung for. Many calls it the happy fiction, but let's be honest. If by truly having trust, I mean, you can't say belief, but faith has a toxic connotation to it in the West, English. So let's say, say trust. If you have a trust that synchronicity will guide, right? That's Sanskrit. This is why you hear about bhakti so much. Uh, devotional practice, bhakti. But it's only because it's incredibly important and so often missing. I mentioned faith in Sanskrit because it is very clear what it's meant to teach. Shraddha, Shraddha, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I'm not too worried about it. It's the concepts that I'm worried about. So faith, Shraddha. It's commitment, it's confidence and devotion in the path you follow. That's no different than the definition of religion in the West, but it tends to be the third or the fourth uh, definition, most people don't read past the headlines anymore. Right? So that's my only criticism. And, and I mean, I would agree with um, Jordan Peterson when he said, uh, where is it? Uh, this idea that it tends, uh, you discover this despite yourself. Right? Because I've explained this before. I'm I'm strongly in the camp of agnostic. I always have been. When I was young, I didn't mind calling myself uh, an atheist. Um, but, you know, people, people misunderstand. But I've always been in that maybe camp. I don't know. I can't prove yay or nay. But I was too much in the doubts, too much in the skepticism camp. Because there is something to this belief in synchronicity, this belief in in um, in potential, this belief in karma. If you watch this video, as I mentioned, Gadi Taub on YouTube, he's only got a little under six thousand subscribers. It's uh, Jordan Peterson on masculinity, meaning God and fatherhood, with uh, Gadi Taub. Yeah, really good interview. They were in uh, Zurich. But what you'll take away is. Well, I'm hoping, kind of like what I was talking about here, that, jeez, uh, there's a whole new level of discussion that opens up when we look at how some of these, um, these concepts tie together, right? You'll see in the video that there's a whole bunch of strings we can pull on. I mean... I might even adjust my opinion on Jordan Peterson. I mean, um, my main criticism here is I'm surprised that he didn't go into this idea of the hero's journey and illness, right? And how this can be transformational. Right? So that's the lesson of not becoming a victim of your illness because, as Jung said, the secret is to become a hero in your own story. Right? So if you cast yourself as a victim, how can you be the hero? I mean, you can be a wounded hero, but not a victim. Right? 
And for me, the biggest takeaway is uh, the book of Job. Uh, Jordan Peterson is often talking about Exodus lately. But I think the book of Job teaches us something more. It teaches us how we can find meaning even when we are truly subject to... Um, what, I, what would you call it? Uh, persecution, right? This, uh, well, that's, I guess, probably my final uh, takeaway. The, when you watch this interview, uh, my biggest takeaway is there was a missed opportunity to explain that that's how you can um, transition from victim to hero. And in so doing, you change uh, how you contextualize everything in life. If you're the hero of your, your own story, then you're no longer a victim. It's impossible to balance those opposites, right? You can be wounded, you can have setbacks, you can be bruised and battered as a warrior. But the only person that can defeat you is you, right? That's the real lesson that, I mean, if we go back and look here, if Jung were to say we're not masters in our own house, the real reason is because we haven't taken up residence in our own house as of yet. That's Carl Jung's individuation, right? Uh, to, to reside in one's house. Right? To take up residence is individuation. And what I mean by that is to understand who you are in relation, as I said, individuation. Understand your relationship to your past, to your present, um, to your loved ones, to, to reality itself, to uh, your desires, your wants, your preferences, all this jazz. To know thyself is to know thy motivation, is to know thy destiny in the sense of what you want to do, right? So he's not wrong when he says we're not masters in our own house. But the problem is that not that we're unable to be masters of our own house. The problem is that we have chosen not to be, consciously chosen not to be uh, masters in our own house and we've done that for so long many of us don't even realize that it's possible I mean and I've said this a million times I think placebo proves the potential because if we can heal strictly by believing in something right it's the same idea of what uh, Jordan Peterson was talking about you can't have just a sense of meaning same as you can't have the sense of placebo you can't believe in placebo to heal. You have to believe in a protocol. Right? So if that protocol is exercise, if it's philosophy, if it's charity, if it's compassion, if it's pity. I mean, the same can be said of many negative uh, drives. They can give a sense of meaning and purpose, but they tend to denature. Because right? 
this whole discussion of you're either atrophying or you're, um, you're growing can be said of the self, can be said of the uh, subconscious, of the, the unconscious, whatever you want to call it. If you're not working on those muscles, they get weaker. As they get weaker and weaker, and this is my theory here, eventually you lose track of it ever having been a skill that you possessed. And thus, walk around completely unconscious, you know, helpless. I'm such a victim. When, as I've said before, it takes but a moment to choose a different path for oneself, for others, for the universe, right? This cliche of changing oneself changes the universe because immediately when your perception changes, your reactions change, your, your, um, your perspective changes, it changes everything. Habit, sure, but all it takes is the commitment to continue to make those choices and eventually that becomes the default. I had no idea until recently, <sighs> had a little scare um, with shingles, still don't know if I've developed shingles. Um, that's usually a big deal because uh, it's supposedly a really horrible and painful disease, but in my research of shingles, what I found out is well, I, I uh, found out that there's this, um, I can't remember what they call it, but it's some sort of a nerve damage that causes permanent pain, even after healing in certain areas, right? So you can get a, a section of, uh, you know, shingles, which is just a skin uh, disorder. Uh, but because of the whatever is acting on the skin, uh, it's an organ, right? Damages the nerves and you can have uh, pain. For, for, well, permanent is what I understood, right? It can permanently damage the nerves and the nerves overreact, causing you to have regular pain. Well, the disease that I do have, and I have had for, uh, for a long time, the one that took nearly 10 years to get diagnosed with to understand what we were battling, I'd already learned that I needed to fight inflammation, but I had no idea what I actually was dealing with. In the end, it's a skin disease, not unlike... Um, well, I don't know about the skin disease, but sorry, it's an, it's an autoimmune disease, not unlike, or an autoinflammatory disease, depending on how you define them. Uh, not unlike lupus, in a sense that it affects so many parts of the body, but it's stick to the skin idea. Um, I always just assumed it was just me. And uh, I have stage three uh, hydrodinitis uh, superativa. I say superativa because it's such a super disease. Super rare, no known cure. Uh, and dermatologists consider it one of the most um, horrible. And now I'm starting to realize why. The pain that is uh, attached to uh, HS, which is the short form for it, uh, tends to be quite intense. And I misunderstood. I thought the doctors were always talking about the pain of when you have a localized abscess or something like that. But no, no, no. What is actually worse is, well, for example, I suffer from what is likely fibromyalgia, but we'll never know because I have other inflammatory conditions, so they can't differentiate the inflammatory markers in the blood. But... What I also wonder is HS may actually be uh, causing the exact same sort of uh, pain because I'll have pain in joints and it'll, be, uh, it'll just come and go. But what I learned uh, 
is what really harms these people is even after, say, a, a bout of shingles, when it goes away, it can damage the nerves so bad that these people have constant ceaseless pain, right? So I misunderstood. I thought it was my scar tissue from having healed in different areas, uh, that that was what was painful because they talk about scar tissues pulling that. But no, it's this nerve damage that results in permanent uh, chronic pain. So as I mentioned before, um, a disease, right? You can lose your body or you can lose your soul. You can lose both. I mentioned this before. Since so many of us are traumatized, so many of us are ill, not only is that a traumatizing experience, but I've mentioned this, you get so disconnected from your body that sometimes you don't even notice these things. Like there were times that I wouldn't even know that I had abscesses until I was in the shower soaping up because you compartmentalize this stuff because it is so traumatizing. But what I've come to realize is wow, I am so much stronger than I've ever given myself credit. But at the same time, I'm horrible in so many ways. So I manage some incredible suffering, some incredible pain. Uh, the book of Job does resonate for me, uh, but not the way you'd think, uh, just in the fact that, you know, we can get through anything. But I'm also guilty of what Jordan Peterson mentioned. There's, there's so much I can't do. I am so limited in so many areas, but then there's areas that I'm not limited. Like this morning, I wanted to share Carl Jung's uh, Access to the Active Imagination, share how I do a live I Ching reading. But of course, oh, well, I'm not good with the cameras, and I'll have to figure out how to use the... Uh, um, the streaming software again and oh my laptop is so old and I want it to freeze and crash and overheat and die and I mean you could find a million reasons why but arguably even if I had walked people through put up a still picture if I put up a still picture of of the reading and then walk people through how I do the reading that would be more than nothing or if I were to finally get around to actually sharing my story of how I've been able to get my diseases, uh, many of them, many of them intractable, many of them without proper treatments, yet I've been able to manage them. My complex trauma, uh, I'm an eight or a nine on the adverse childhood experience uh, rating. So, I mean, arguably I should be in jail. I should be addicted to all the drugs. I should be a criminal. I should be a wife beater. I should be a psychopath. I should be just a mess. But that I've devoted my entire life to healing others and trying to minimize my toxic effect in this world. Or my allergies. I have allergies so bad that I really, I can't eat out anywhere because I'm allergic to eggs, dairy, um, and that's just about in everything. Yeast, then that's just about everything, especially now with all of the additives they put in. I can't have many things like these sugar alcohols, so, you know, it's in almost everything. I can't really have a lot of refined sugar, but that's not a big deal. But we all know how much refined sugar is in our foods. Not a natural sugar. But then the oats, uh, for years, I mean, I, my own family fed me oatmeal for breakfast even though I had to go through the most intense, traumatizing experiences 
I could ever explain. Uh, getting tested for allergies as a young lad 40 years ago was incredibly traumatic. She took um, this uh, drill bit is what it looked like, but the end of it was sharp and she would twist it and it would tear up your skin. And she had to do hundreds of these little holes in my skin to tear my skin. And that was just the beginning because after they tore open your skin, they would drop a little bit of a concentrated uh, allergen, right? Uh, grass, mold, mildew, pollen. I was so sick, I blew up so fast. They were shocked by how fast I reacted. Usually they drop it on, they got to wait. No, I was almost immediate on a number of these different things. And it made me so sick, they were shocked. That tiny little bit of some of the stuff I was allergic to dropped on my skin actually caused me to have uh, a histamine response, right? And in like, uh, what would you call it? A, a global histamic response, if that's correct. But yet my family failed to do what they needed to do. In fact, they used to make fun and go, oh, they told us we'd have to get rid of our carpets. And <laughs> Really? Okay, well, then why did you traumatize me and take me to all them tests if you weren't going to do anything? Because... For Easter, I got yogurt bunnies. Disgusting. Just a ton of sugar, too. Like, why don't you just give me health food, fruit or something like that? That would have been awesome. Especially me as a young lad. I liked fruit. Get me a toy or something like they do with Chanaka, right? Um, we could have done something different. But I was fed oatmeal for breakfast very often. Or uh, Cheerios. Aren't they made with oats? Uh, and yet... The doctor told you I was allergic to oats, but not told about that. But fast forward 30 years, what I was not told about is if you're allergic, especially as severely as I, allergic to oats, well, I mean, wheat and barley and all these other grains that are biosimilar to oats, you really should avoid. Right? But how many of us, like lactose intolerant, how many of us just get used to the discomfort and pain and trouble? I mean, I know a number of people who are so lactose intolerant, it gives them actual intestinal distress, but they still eat dairy, won't give up their cheese. That seems to be the most common one that people won't give up. But arguably, um, most of us are lactose intolerant. The number is 70, 80, 90% of us shouldn't be eating dairy after uh, we're weaned. Uh, some of the evidence is the, the Iceman that was found, I think, in Austrian Alps, was actually lactose intolerant. He was also carrying uh, cannabis, hemp, uh, for healing, which, by the way, was also, uh, what do you call it, uh, an offering to uh, Dionysus uh, in the uh, one of the mystery religions, the cult of Dionysus. Uh, Indian hemp was one of the donations. I love how it ties in. And as I said earlier, Tantra also ties into uh, my love of Northrop Fry and being a Canadian, right? Northrop Fry made his his career on opening up uh, William Blake's poetry, and arguably, I guess I've discovered my destiny lies in opening up um, the aphorisms of Nietzsche, right? Being able to explain to people what Zarathustra really is. It's not as complicated as many people like to make out. I've talked about this before, right? I've been I've been told by people that. You know, uh, they don't read Jung because it's so hard to get into. Even uh, Jordan Peterson mentions how difficult his uh, books are. 
so that maybe is my destiny. The fact that I love to read Zarathustra. Uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra, I read um, uh, Carl Jung's uh, Liber Novus. I love it as well, but I realize it's because it's, it's almost like uh, fan fiction uh, based off of uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra. And Zarathustra I love because I love the Upanishads. I love the Bhagavad Gita. I love the Dhammapada. Right? I guess I would have loved uh, uh, the Azura Mazda. Or, um, I can't remember. the. That's the god, I think, in, in Zoroaster, Zoroastrianism. Whatever their holy books were, um, I'm pretty sure I probably would have loved them as well. This idea of uh, of a unity of the opposites. The idea of being a strong individual, but also uh, supporting and being reliant on uh, the community as a whole. Right? So that was my main takeaway. Uh, I really found this video to be insightful, but we talked about this online before when people were talking about uh, Nietzsche books to read. and, and So I mentioned this, uh, who was it? Uh, Richard Mole, I believe. Richard Noll or Moll, N-O-L-L or M-O-L-L. I think it's Richard Noll, N-O-L-L. He wrote a couple books on Jung, Jung Cult, for example. And then he almost published a book on Jung and uh, Nietzsche. But uh, the, the Jung family actually suppressed it. Now, some of it's made its way to the internet. And if you read, this is where it gets surprising. So this is supposed to be a Jungian scholar, he's a psychologist, yada, yada, yada. We now believe, uh, and I'm not the only one to say this, that uh, Nietzsche was among the first psychologists, maybe one of the greatest. But this gentleman hadn't read much, if any, of Nietzsche. And he's asking the, uh, the editor of the Red Book, uh, Jung's editor, I believe the historian for the Jung Foundation. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Historian for the Jung Foundation ask him if he had read much Nietzsche. And he said he hadn't read much Nietzsche, but oh my God, I can't believe it. So he's reading Nietzsche. I find it shocking, because he even mentions that, whoa, geez, yeah, I mean, uh, even with how many times uh, Jung mentions Nietzsche in his work, I still didn't realize how much influence it had on him. Well, I'm shocked. If you're a scholar of Jung, how do you not read Nietzsche? Right? Because I've mentioned this before, how can you read Nietzsche if you don't at least have an understanding of, say, Hegel, uh, Schopenhauer, Kant, uh, Spinoza, uh, and the Greeks? Um, I mean, then now we're looking at uh, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Rig Vedas, whatever was translated at the time. I mean, this is what Northrop Fry was trying to teach us. That's why they couldn't penetrate William Blake's poetry. It's because they didn't realize that like many in the West, his metaphors were based in what we used to consider religious symbolism, when in reality it's just archetypes, human archetypes, mythos, whatever it might be. So when uh, Northrop Fry figured out that William Blake, William Blake was using uh, Paradise Lost in the Bible as his very complicated uh, cipher, for his uh, his uh, writing, that opened up the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley says. Right, this is what it's trying to teach us. For decades, people lived with a closed mind, 
as to what was meant. Many people thought that William Blake was just uh, writing gibberish. It's not that different from Finnegan's Wake. Right? The, it seems like gibberish until you have the understanding, the verbiage, the language to express it. But without the language to express it, you're unable to, to understand or to even hear it. So that's the real takeaway here, that we have to be present, right? We have to be um, idealized, at least in the sense of working towards betterment. What Hemingway said, it's only honorable to be better than your previous self, not better than anyone else, right? Because apples and apples, right? So for me, I guess uh, the final takeaway is uh, this week has been um, transformational. It's not synchronicity that I read um, uh, letters uh, between a couple of uh, psychologists talking about how, you know, Jung's psychology is essentially uh, Nietzschean. Right? And Nietzschean philosophy is essentially uh, Upashanic. Right? Or the Jing or the, the Greek mystery cults, right? So the real truth here is this is once again possibly a universal lesson, an archetype, uh, what would you call it? Uh, I guess a, a true panacea of what ails us. Yet over and over again, these authors continue to remind us of something that we obviously are not listening to. But on that, have a fabulous day. Thank you for listening.